Such Stuff the World is Made of, William Cowper. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to welcome you all, and thank you all for joining me this week. Um, If you're a returning listener, thank you. And if you are a new listener, I hope you enjoy and will continue to listen as well. Now, a um, couple of quick things. Uh, first, uh, let me know if you have any suggestions for kind of the October bonus specials that we did uh, last year. Uh, we're going to be doing the same thing. Um, I think I've still got one space open, maybe two, uh, but at least one for sure. Um, there's a book I just started, and I'm trying to work my way through it, but I don't know that I'll be able to complete it and really do a good job of um, uh, studying it and getting a kind of thing set up for it. So, um, uh, now uh, that's the ma- that's just the kind of housekeeping stuff. Um, I did have a couple of quick corrections for some things um, last week that I didn't make 100% clear, so um, I just wanted to go ahead and start off with the clarification on those. Uh, now, when Neolithic peoples first get to Europe, uh, they're apparently a ceramic. Uh, we don't see pottery immediately. However, by the end of this season's time frame, pottery has arrived. And it spreads like wildfire, and even some groups that are still in the Mesolithic hunter-gatherer mode of living uh, begin to have these items appear. And in some cases, they're even producing their own with their own uh, small artistic flair or designs. Now, this isn't a universal phenomenon, but it is happening in some places. So, that's just one of those things I wanted to get and cor- well, not correct, but make sure I stated it. So it was clear. Um, But one of those places that I was referring to is going to be Italy. Um, Before that, though, I also realized that I forgot to kind of give an etymological breakdown of some major areas we talked about last time. And I'm going to correct that now. Uh, So we are going to be going a little bit backwards to last week's subject. Uh, First, I want to talk about the name Greece and how it comes to us in English uh, and other languages from Latin. Um, Now, uh, the Greeks, when referring to themselves collectively, used the term Hellenes. Uh, Though sometimes a a more archaic term was used, like Achaeans, Uh, That's typically happened in the classical and pre-classical periods, but um, you know most most Greeks today uh, use the term Hellenes, uh, or at least that's the Greek term for Greece. And uh, sorry, Hellas is the Greek term for Greece, and Hellenes are uh, the Greek term for Greeks. Uh, And this is related to a mythological figure, uh, Helen, not the Helen you're thinking of, not Helen of Troy, uh, but This is a male and, of course, her ancestor and the ancestor of all Greeks. Uh, But we will talk about that more later. Um, Now, we'll dive into the terminology um, when we talk about the Greek peoples and their archaic history and myths. But there was a subgroup or neighboring group uh, 
that spoke a dialect of Greek that was called Grai or Grykoi. Uh, supposedly after a mythological figure named Grykos, who was their ancestor. Uh, these people lived on the Adriatic coast around what is now modern Albania and Greece's far northwest. Uh, they were, if not the first Greek people to settle the Italian peninsula, um, they were very early ones to do so, and probably the most successful on mainland Italy. Uh, their name became associated with the language uh, among the native uh Latins and Samnites and all those other Italian groups. Uh, so they understood that the language they were speaking was Grai or Graikoi. Um, so they began to apply it to everyone who spoke uh, that language. Of course, Graikoi is a very small subset of the actual Greek language, so uh, there's kind of a big. <laughs> difference between, you know, how many people are speaking Graikoi Greek or uh, Attic or Doric or Ionic Greek. Um, you know, if the the Romans had, or any of the Italians had realized, you know, they might have used a different term t when referring to Greece. So, uh, the name of the Graikoi became associated with the language and the people who spoke it among the various Italian peoples. That's, that's generally believed uh, how that term arose. Now, for the term the Balkans, this is actually fairly new in history. Uh, I don't think it becomes fairly popularized until around the late 1700s or uh, and somewhere I read also that had it at like the very beginning of the 1800s uh, when a German uh, began to use the term to collectively describe all the mountain ranges in that you know larger Balkan Peninsula. And we will talk about earlier names for the region later, but the term Balkan or something close to Balkan shows up in several languages, though typically uh, the term is attributed to Turkish where it initially meant something close to a thick swamp of forests. Now, not an actual swamp, but like how dense and overgrown the forests were is kind of what they mean when they say swamp. And this was an adjective that they used to describe um, uh, the forests on the region's mountains. Of course, in modern Turkish, it has come to mean the region so it it's a term that they use probably just as a descriptor and then it became just the term for the region and then of course the german studying it um passed the term on to the rest of uh, europe at least that's one of the major theories and the most popular one um in um other theories say that it comes from a, a Persian, an old Persian word, a balakana, which means large, high house. Uh, though this isn't as widely accepted because other Turkish languages use very similar terms for tightly packed forest, and that the similarity to the Persian is essentially a coincidence. At least that's the that's kind of the answer from the. You know, Balkan is a Persian term, or excuse me, that's the answer from the Balkan is a Turkish term crowd to the um, 
theory that it's Persian. But, um, again, most people accept that it's a Turkish term. At least in all the literature I've read. Uh, now, we're going to move into Italy, and we will start again uh, with etymology. Uh, this is much more debated than the other two terms, and it has been debated since classical times. Several early Greek historians and writers believe that the name came from a king, uh, Italos, who ruled over a nomadic tribe of people known as the Antoros. Excuse me, the Onotrians. Uh, they changed their name to honor him after he led them to permanently settle uh, in the toe of the boot of the Italian peninsula, uh, from which they would expand to cover the toe, the heel, as well as parts of Sicily. Another Greek theory is that the Italoi were a specific tribe who had crossed from the boot to central Sicily. Uh, and then made their home there as well. Um, some Roman and Latin authors claim that the name came from the Oscan language in uh, their word uh, Witilio, uh, or Witalio, which means land of calves. Um, there are uh, other less popular theories brought forward with some claiming that it comes from an archaic Greek word Italia, which means, uh, which, or it would mean something like land of fire. Uh, and this would reference the volcanoes of Sicily and southern, southern Italy. Uh, Mount Etna's name uh, probably shares a similar origin, uh, if that is indeed a Greek uh, origin term. Uh, Etna, or Etna, would just mean like uh, fire. Or, um, or, like fiery chimney or something like that, something something along those lines. Uh, then there are those who believe that the term may have been related to Etruscan. Of course, with most of the Etruscan language having been lost, there's not a whole lot to go on there. Uh, personally, I favor the Oscan origin theory myself, um, though I'm not sure how much money I would be willing to bet on it. <laughs> I'm only maybe 60% over the... Um, Maybe the, uh, the, the Greek uh, Ithalia uh, definition. Uh, and I should point out that there have been attempts to sometimes link some of these ancient theories together. Uh, and that's more kind of the mythologizing and you know trying to mix, trying to connect uh, rationalized myths to actual history, which is something that um, Greek and Latin writers do. Um, but we'll we'll dive into that much later. I also need to make clear that initially, Italy only referred to essentially um, the ankle of the boot to the south uh, coast. Um, as time goes on, though, that definition spreads. In fact, the whole peninsula isn't entirely considered Italy until... Uh, the late Roman Republic or maybe early Empire, uh, depending on, you know, what you consider Italy. Uh, and the nearby islands uh, weren't included in that until around a couple of centuries later. Uh, I think around the 200s AD, um, you start seeing uh, Italian, 
or Italy refer to the islands of Sardinia, Corsica, um, Elba. Well, Elba was probably included earlier because it's much closer to the peninsula. Excuse me. But then, of course, you also have Sicily. Um, Sicily, I think, may have been included slightly earlier just because it's closer. Um, but, uh, again, uh, the islands... Uh, uh, Corsica and Sardinia are not included until around around the 200s AD. At least they aren't considered Italian until that point. Although it's very possible they were considered Italian earlier, but that was just the government acknowledging the fact that they're Italians, which, again, sometimes you have a little bit of a disconnect between popular opinion and legal or um, governmental um definitions so that's always something to keep in mind as well but we'll talk about the, the the evolution of the term again in future episodes uh now for the peoples living in italy at 8000 to 6000 bce um they are very much like those we discussed the last episode uh, they had been part of the wider epigravetian tool making tradition and they, like their cousins to the east, uh, began to abandon some of their traditional um, gathering places and start to evolve uh, their lifestyle and tools and art. Um, and this includes some small shifts to more Neolithic-type bladelets and a much more sedentary lifestyle, though they are still much more mobile than what you're seeing in Greece and the Danube with the Iron Gates culture. Um, and there is a little bit more, I think, um, in terms of like cave art and stuff, I think there are some later examples that are still very close to what you had found you know, in the millennia prior to that. Um, but once you reach about 6,500, 6,400 BC, you begin to see the emergence of a new type of material culture. And this cultural designation is not based on a tool design or technique, but instead on pottery patterns. Uh, and it is referred to as the cardio wear or impressed wear culture. Um, We've talked a lot about tool traditions. Pottery traditions are going to be much more important all over the world uh, going forward um, as, of course, styles evolve. And uh, that's one of the big kind of uh, indicators of who was living where uh, prior to the advancement of like DNA testing. Uh, of course, pottery is still studied. It's still very important. Um, but it, uh, it does kind of show... And, it, of course, it shows like... Who was interacting with what, where, uh, when, uh, and DNA kind of helps us refine, well, what is the exact relationship between, uh, say, like a cardial wear site in uh, southern Greece versus one in southern France, or I'm sorry, uh, southern Italy versus one in southern France. Um, how closely related are these people? Are they related at all? That kind of thing. Um, and it's important to remember that in the grand scheme of things, uh, people are not pots. Uh, they're not their pottery. Uh, they might, just because they might use a specific type of pottery, 
does not mean they're related in any way to other people using their pottery. Again, uh, I, you know, anyone who plays a Nintendo Switch, um, you know, in America, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're Japanese because the Japanese also use Nintendo Switches. That's just like a very uh, modern kind of interpretation. Uh, material culture is not necessarily a genetic culture or a political culture. Um, but, you know, it is one of those things that we can use to kind of um, show some similarities, but there's still so much gaps in terms of our knowledge of how these people are interacting or uh, not interacting with each other. Maybe it's just a very small number of people who are very interested in trade. Or maybe um, a couple of people from one place just learned how to make the pottery from people living in another and they just took it on down the line and maybe they're the ones that are actually trading the pots and not the people who originally created them this is all stuff that is highly debated talked about and it's something i just i want you to keep in mind uh, as we're going forward you know basically for the rest of um the neolithic and that includes this season and next season and so on and so forth and basically until we get to actual uh, recorded history so um yeah just just keep that in mind now um the name uh cardial wear uh essentially comes from uh the heart cockle shells um their specific name is uh corculum cardissa uh, and essentially, the shells would be placed on the pottery, um, on the the back of the shells, uh, or the I guess the outside of the shells are placed uh, on the pottery while it is still um, soft enough to leave an impression. And the shell patterns, um, you know, basically kind of swirl around um, the various types of vessels that they're making, and they they come in all shapes and sizes. Um, but typically these do tend to be on the smaller side. They don't have any massive ones that I'm aware of that have this pattern. Um, but it is something. Um, now the oldest places this design has been discovered are in small coastal sites in, uh, modern Albania and again, mainland Northwest Greece and the island of, uh, Corfu and sites um, where the design is found spreads rapidly. You see them kind of jump uh, from, again, around that 6500, 6400 BC, you see them spread uh, over the next 500 years. They get, um, they get a ways out from there, and they, they get to several locations in Italy. Um, so essentially, by the end of this season, at 6000 BC, um, we do see um, pottery with similar designs. Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, with similar designs, they are found all throughout the coast on the eastern side of the Adriatic, along the south um, of Italy's boot, uh, and the southeast coast of Italy as well. And along a section of uh, the Italian peninsula's west coast that are parallel to the islands of Elba and Corsica, as well as parts of eastern Sardinia. 
Um, and the sites where this pottery can be found will expand. Um, but that's where it appears to be at the end of this season. So they've basically, um, if you look at the sites where it's been located, um, it appears to be, and again, this could be wrong because, again, at this date, you might have sites that just haven't been discovered. Uh, just because you find something somewhere does not mean it is the oldest example of this. Uh, and just because you don't find, just because you're finding stuff at one place on the coast, doesn't mean that it's not existing further inland. It just uh, means that maybe you haven't found it further inland. Um, but, um, essentially, if you look at a map of where this stuff shows up, it appears that these peoples coming from um, the, the, the Asia-Anatolia region, um, it does appear that they are fairly reliant on um, some small level of sea travel. Not long journeys. They're essentially um, going across from Albania to the tip of southern Italy. Uh, and then they're kind of sailing south and then kind of just following the coasts and spreading out, you know, just basically hopping around the coasts. Uh, they don't fully occupy everything. Or at least that's what, if you follow the pottery pattern, shows. Uh, again, we're not sure that these, um, that these Anatolians are moving yet um we know that they do uh, we can tell that from dna um while everyone of course in europe has this ancient western and eastern hunter-gatherer dna uh at least one of those two primary groups uh in some cases both um they also have this anatolian dna as well uh, so we know that there is inter uh breeding uh, at some level now, whether it's happening as they're spreading their pottery or if the pottery is maybe presaging later migrations, like, hey, we're trading with these people. Um, maybe we should, you know, learn more about them. Maybe we should journey to them to maybe get better um, understanding of what they need, uh, of what they can give us. And maybe as they're moving into these regions, um, you know, maybe the pottery's been there for a couple hundred years, and then the people are moving in following, you know, their trade routes. Um, this is all highly debated. Uh, I will say that um, while you do find several instances of violent uh, deaths in the Neolithic record, and this is not just in Europe, this is everywhere, um, large-scale invasions or... Um, destruction or death like you don't really find too too many uh examples of this as far as i'm aware there's no large scale like battle sites or slaughters or anything like that from this early period uh, now if someone is aware of one please let me know because i'd love to see that um but we just don't have it just yet um but, you know, you do, again, you do find some cases of, um, you know, one or two deaths um, of people who died violently. Um, 
or who were injured and then died and it maybe is not clear that they didn't live much longer than their injuries like there's no sign of healing because you do find cases of you know people who were injured somehow and then they survived and they you know they lived a lot longer than their um when uh, they lived a lot longer than from when they received their injuries um so it's not necessarily like a violent invasion uh the people living in um anatolia they're maybe not even interested in the lands that the uh hunter gatherers are living in uh, hunter gatherers may be you know more interested in living uh closer to those ectones like they they want to be in a location that uh, you can easily get to a mountain, but you can also easily get to a pond or like somewhere that you can maybe go a couple of you know a couple of miles away. You've got a forest another couple of miles away from the south of where you're living. You can set up people to hunt uh, waterfowl in a pond or a lake or something like that, and they could also fish. Um, you know, they don't, hunter-gatherers don't necessarily have to stay somewhere if they don't want to or if they're feeling crowded. Um, now, they may not like moving as much, but they can move. Um, whereas that, you know, the people coming in from Anatolia, they're beginning to practice this, uh, well, they are practicing agriculture at this point. Uh, they, they've, they've at least got some semi-domesticated strains or early domesticated strains. Uh, so they're, you know, they're very, um, you know, uh, practiced, uh, or, you know, they're very, uh, specific in their needs. Uh, they know what they need. They need, uh, places that are either, A, getting a lot of rainfall, uh, they need a lot of clear, open land, um, plains, which, you know, hunter-gatherers, uh, might be a good place to sleep, but honestly, like, animals the type of animals that are living in Europe at this point in time, um, they're not chasing these huge megafauna herds across an open plain or a savanna like you would in Africa. Um, no, you're you're looking for animals like in the forest. You're hunting boar. You're hunting small deer. You're you're looking for uh, birds that are nestling in trees like these large flat plains. Um, they're probably not all that great. Um, you might. You know, be in a river valley because you know there's water and fish there, but you know it's not nearly as essential. And from what we can tell from these, like the way these tools travel, um, there are several waves um, that go to various places. Um, and once these uh, Anatolians or you know migrants come in. Um, and begin to practice their agriculture, they don't really necessarily move too far inland too quick. They essentially occupy these coastal areas or they find where rivers are entering into the sea and then they begin to kind of slowly make their way up river. Um, you know, they have smaller sites, you know, kind of spread out or they maybe have one big location that they that they occupy for a time and they plant their crops 
all along the river, and they're just kind of staying in one place, and they're uh, essentially uh, sleeping in one location, and they have their crops all along um, these long river uh, river systems, which Europe uh, has, you know, quite a lot. Um, even more, of course, than you know what you're seeing in Anatolia. Uh, and, of course, you have the Tigris and Euphrates, but those are massive systems, and they're very closely tied to each other. Uh, whereas Europe, um, they do have, have a course, uh, like the Danube, the Rhine, uh, the Volga. These are massive river systems, um, but they, of course, have some smaller ones that are kind of independent. Uh, Italy has several um, that just are smaller. Uh, you've got water flowing down from the Alps. Um and uh, some of the river systems uh, coming from the mountains of southern Italy uh, or Sicily. Um, you know, you've got a lot of nice little river systems to kind of set up in. And they're not quite as dangerous uh, with flooding as you'll see in some of the places in um, uh, the Middle East. <clears throat> so that's why... Um, or that's just a, that's kind of a, a reason why you might not see this large-scale uh, destruction uh, of hunter-gatherers, or you might not find all these uh, sites of a slaughter, because hunter-gatherers can just melt away if they, if they want to. Um, with all the food surpluses that these Anatolians have, there might be, you know, there might not be as much violence as you would expect. There might be people who are like, you know, this, this doesn't seem so bad. Um, I'm sure that this was a problem, you know, at some level. I'm sure that there were people who were like, maybe we should join these people. Um, and then there are people like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and then they just leave. Um, so you'll probably see some family units break apart or extended family units break apart. Um, and I'm sure, of course, that there were violent disagreements. Um, but it's something that... Um, isn't quite clear. Now, of course, it is hard to find. Um, archaeology is very good, again, at finding um, finding locations that are well used, where you can tell, like, okay, yes, this is happening very regularly for a very long period of time. Um, a battle, actually, they're fairly hard to locate uh, the further back you go. Um there are places where, like, oh, well, we know that this battle happened here, but we haven't really found any, like, archaeological evidence. Or you might find, like, one or two things. But, you know, some cases, like, well, we know that there were tens of thousands of people in this battle. We found, like, maybe a dozen skeletons. Um, so, you know, battle locations are kind of hard to find. So it might not be that they weren't frequent or that they didn't happen at a large scale. It just might be that so long ago it's impossible to see so um but we'll kind of dive more into this when we talk about the uh, ever-growing sense of conflict between sedentary and non-sedentary uh, cultures and societies uh, this is something that absolutely picks up over time um or at least uh is something that's very consistent throughout time uh, it's probably always been there at some level but it seems to increase um, the further along human history you go. <clears throat> now, um, of course, we do have um, other um, 
pottery traditions that begin to emerge. Um, however, most of those don't appear uh, until much later. Uh, so we're not going to talk about them uh, this week. Uh, and there are geographic uh, boundaries to some of these um, pottery traditions or cultures. Um, and the, you can kind of see that they are appearing uh, different times, uh, but there is generally an overlap between most of them. Um, so there's a geographic uh, there's a geographic difference between these different um, pottery uh, traditions, um, and there is not always a clear, again, genetic or cultural um, evidence in all these sites. So there may have been people who are living in, um, you know, south of the Alps in Italy, um, who are very closely related to people north of the Alps in what will be something like uh, uh, Germany or uh, Luxembourg or Switzerland or, or France, um, but they're using completely different pottery types. Um, so that's something that we'll talk about and dive into in the future. Um, but yeah, um, and I should point out that there is a um, there is kind of a clear delineation of like how pottery is spread, like where it's coming from, based on some of the um, the design patterns. You can see, okay, well these people are clearly influenced by this group, um, but these people have a completely different art style. Uh, essentially, what it looks like is that uh, Anatolian uh, uh, farmers uh, move into Greece and the Balkans uh, fairly early. Um, you know, you know, either uh, right around 7,000, maybe 100 years or so after that, and then um, they stay put there for, you know, uh, basically from around 7,000 to 6,000. And then you've got... Um, more splits uh, occurring. Um, there is a theory that, um, you know, I talked about how uh, Crete was occupied by people who had probably come from Cyprus or from um, um, Ionia or like the, the Anatolian coastline in the uh, kind of the central and the southwest of the Anatolian uh, peninsula. Whereas people coming into mainland Greece and the Balkans had probably come uh, more a more overland road, uh, route, um, coming from like the Dardanelles or the Bosphorus Straits. Um, so it's possible that the people uh, along the Adriatic coast, those islands, it's possible that they could have been um, peoples who had at one point come from. Uh, early settlers of Crete, uh, and they had sailed around the coast. And that's why you see them so much along the sea. Whereas maybe the people going the inland routes actually just begin to kind of go north. Uh, and they get into um, uh, the Carpathian Mountains, uh, the Transylvania area, the um, what is modern Hungary. Uh, and then it is there that they're also meeting groups who had migrated from the Caucasus uh, into um, what is now, um, you know, Moldova, Ukraine, 
Bulgaria, and that these two groups are merging together, um, and then they will begin to move into uh, Germany or, um, you know, uh, the Baltics. Um, and uh, again, like, there's not a whole lot to go over um, with uh, Germany, at least um, just yet. Um, I think we had talked about the Arnberg culture, which was very much overlapped a lot with um, um, modern Germany and, like, the very, very south of uh, Denmark, and it's got parts of. Um, uh, England and the Low Countries, um, and that culture basically exists or appears to exist almost entirely during the Younger Dryas period. Uh, now, where we are now, of course, the Younger Dryas is over, and it has been for you know almost two thousand years at the start of our um, at the start of this season. So. Um, like the Epicovetian disappearing, this leads to a number of smaller regional uh, cultures. Um, now, I didn't mention them last time, uh, but uh, as they were, it's kind of hard to place them because they're right in that border region between, you know, Russia, Belarus, Poland, and um, you know they're very closely related to, um, uh, you know, things more in Central uh, Europe. Um, and that's the Kunda culture. Um, these, ha- at the start of our season, begun, begun to form around five, uh, 500 years before the start of our season. So right around 8,500, you see a small kind of, um, a kind of very small, very localized uh, culture begin to form. And it, it does last for a while. Uh, it lasts all through this season. Uh, until uh, around 5000 BC. Um, but uh, it's named after the town of Akunda, which is in modern-day Estonia. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's right um, east of like, the modern uh, city of Finland. Uh, I'm sorry, not Finland. Tallinn, or Tallinn, uh which is right along the Gulf of Finland. It's towards the um, uh, kind of the south of that uh, of that Gulf, um, and it's it's you know surrounded by um, a peat bog. Uh, so you know that's something that you might not expect. You know where people would want to live, but there were still a lot of elks uh, kind of roaming through those marshes. Um, and of course, I'm sure that there were other animals, um, reindeer. It's a very good place for hunting, or I'm sorry, not hunting, but fishing for like large fish, like um, uh, pikes uh, and things like that. Their tool culture. Um, also, you begin to see types of like more um, Neolithic esque tools but instead of using a lot of stone which they were using stone but there is a ton of uh, bone and antler tools that they use and the the kunda is very small it's very small culture Um, it's basically just a number of small um, uh, um, not ball yes a number of small uh, 
uh, communities just dotted throughout like the the forests along the, the Balkans. Uh, a couple of miles inland, they're not super uh, into the coast, at least living along there. I'm sure, of course, uh, that they would fish there, they chase animals there, they were probably hunting uh, any type of um, seal or something like that, if there were any in the area. Um, you know, anything that they could use to get, um, you know, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, meat and things like that. Um, now, uh, they were also probably a break off of uh, another culture that I talked about last time, which was the uh, Swid- uh, Swidernian or Swidri um, culture. Um, and I, I believe I mentioned them some last uh, s- season, uh, but they ended about 2000. Uh, or I'm sorry, yeah, 200 years before the start of this season. And they were a break off uh, from the Arnsberg culture uh, in, you know, in Germany. They're kind of like the easternmost extent of that. And then you see the Kunda group kind of evolve from them or break away from them, um, you know, about 300 years prior to that culture kind of fizzling out um now uh what happened to the rest of those people some move north uh to uh central um or yeah they they move to the north into what is now um uh denmark and even some places in uh sweden and i believe in um they found some of their things in um, Norway as well. Um, and this is probably, again, due to the Younger Dryas ending. Uh, there's all these um, older, uh, you know, they're, they're probably falling uh, reindeer and things like that, uh, trying to keep this old school uh, megafauna hunting experience up. Uh, and they break away from the Swearden, um Switerin, excuse me, uh, fairly early, uh, around 9,000 BC, um, and they de- they maintained some kind of mainland like North Pomerania, like right along the Baltics too. They have some places. So, but they're still very much involved in again that large, uh, or they're trying to continue to hunt larger um, elks and reindeer and things like that. They're they're trying to keep up in the the more uh frozen reaches i guess um they were uh also big users of bone and horns um they used flint of course as well of course they also had dogs um they were mostly nomadic they were they were more nomadic than the kunda culture um but that's not to say they didn't have any permanent settlement sites but they were very small, uh, very rare. Whereas the Kunda, I think most of the the sites there are almost completely a hundred percent sedentary. With maybe like they might leave for you know a couple of months and come back. And also, like these people are having to deal with crazy types of um, environmental changes um, at the start of our season. Um, Scandinavia has a lot of, um, 
I guess you'd call them uh, birch pines. Um, and you're looking, at, again, you have these older, larger animals. You have a lot of aurochs still, uh, bison, uh, still elks, and even wild horses are still in the area. Um, also, your bird game, you're not getting a huge amount of variety there. Um, you're looking at maybe some smaller um things maybe related to ducks um you'd have cranes uh in the area like around the the um um the marshes and things like that um so you know that you're 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 dealing with that but around 7800 a lot of those birch trees are beginning to disappear and you're getting more uh, you're getting different types of pine begin to become more dominant. Um, things like hazel. Um, now you still have oryx, uh, but you also see more deer. Uh, you've got red deer, roe deer. Um, of course, boars are moving in the area. You've got more smaller uh, uh, predator animals. Uh, lynxes, badgers, polecats, that kind of thing. Uh, you're also seeing more birds begin to move in as well um things kind of similar to swans or um uh you know things like that and then towards the end of the um this season uh right around 7000 bc or so uh you continue to see the um the trees um change uh, again you're getting these larger trees that are closer almost to bushes in terms of how they're they're kind of spread um the animals don't change too much though that's mostly a foliage thing um but uh yeah so you're you're seeing a lot of environmental changes in this region and more of it's becoming livable uh, which is very important um however right around 6000 bc Though you do see uh, the Maglamosian culture uh, fall apart. Um, it's replaced by um, a culture known as the Kong Moss culture. Um, and we're not going to talk about them because, again, uh, they, they just are beginning to form. And they are not quite as um, widespread in Scandinavia. Um, they are more focused in Denmark. So you can see that there is this regional divide beginning to take place, um, probably because uh, the water levels, of course, have by this point become what they are in modern day. There's probably not as much back and forth. Um, I'm sure, you know, even though it's not a long bit of sea travel, um, you know, across the skit, uh, yeah, between Sweden and Denmark, uh, it is still probably cold for most of the time, and you you probably really don't want to have to deal with that if you can help it. Um, but the the Kongmos culture uh, will be will spread from Denmark to some places along the coast to the south um, southwest towards the lowlands, uh, places like uh, uh Netherlands and Belgium in, in the modern day. Uh, and then you'll have some cultures begin to form in uh, Scandinavia. 
Um, these are again smaller regional cultures, um, and they they probably emerged even before the very end of our our season. Uh, and they'll they'll last a while, but they are again they're smaller regional ones. Um, I believe it's um, Lee Holt is the name of one. Um, and uh, they're 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 they are keeping some level of contact with their former um, uh, cousins to the you know in modern Denmark, um, but uh, there's not as nearly as much information on them. Although again, they do appear to emerge um, before uh, the Kongmos culture uh, begins to take over. But we'll talk more about those peoples next time. Now, as for um, Germany, um, you know, to the south of all this, um, we really don't have much in the way of um, specifics. At least I wasn't able to find anything in English. There is a lot of German uh, stuff. Um, but again, you're you're running into where you have these small, um, smaller groups focused around... Um, one big type site. Uh, it's not a true city yet. It's it's kind of similar to what we talked about with Gobekli Tepe, uh, where people are um, congregating for certain parts of the year, and the rest of year people break out into a hunting or foraging parties, or you know maybe defensive parties or maybe trading parties, um, and you get what they need uh, from the land, and they bring it back to their one place, and they you know then they have their festivals, they have their um, you know, I'm sure any kind of religious or uh, social ceremonies to you know reestablish bonds with the extended family or new neighbors, that kind of thing. Um, but there's not a whole lot that I have in terms of German cultures. It's in a it's a it's in a point of flux. Um, there's not one big um, large scale culture in Germany that follows from uh, the Swindurian. Um, there will be eventually. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that next time. But uh, I don't think you see anything like that in Germany until um, until around 5500 BCE. Um, but you, you know, th- there is some relations in terms of um, again pottery. Um, you see a different type of pottery design, and it will dominate. Um, uh, a lot of the uh, river systems in what is now uh, Germany. Um, of course, the Rhine, uh, which is, of course, the, the modern-day um, border uh, for between Germany and France. Um, and then you also have uh, some of the larger rivers in um, in the south, like uh, the Dan... Or, uh, yes, the Danube... Um, Uh, as well as, um, uh, what's the other river? I'm drawing a blank. I'm sorry. I just had a, I just had a massive, uh, um, uh, um, brain, brain blackout there. But yeah, so it, it's basically all the major rivers in modern day Germany. Uh, you can find, uh, this upcoming, um, you know, uh, pottery there Uh, but it doesn't exist yet it is something that is beginning to or will begin to be developed uh, basically right around as this season ends so yeah you have a lot of smaller groups that they're just you know they're they're 
they're dealing with changes in technology. Um, these groups that broke away from the Swearingen and uh, the earlier Arnsberg, they're still probably trying to figure out what the best way to live with this changed environment and these changed animals are you know uh with these you know the animal populations and the environment they're still dealing with the fallout of that from the end of the younger dryas and they're still trying to i guess come up with the proper tools for their new reality um but uh yeah so um unfortunately again you don't see too much in terms of uh german uh like overarching culture just yet um that is again something that will come back um but if someone has any translated um sources that would give me more information about maybe some culture that did exist i would love love to have it um so yeah um oh and obviously i didn't go over the etymology of germany um i think it should be clear it's for the land of the germans uh it's been used for most of that region uh probably since um since at least the first century bce uh, obviously we know that you know caesar referred to that region as that in the commentaries i doubt he's the person to the um um coined the term uh i think uh, strabo uh who was um an author in uh, the basically, I think he's he's a little bit older uh, than Caesar. Although they may have been in the same age, actually. Now that I think about it, um, well, no, that can't be right. Sorry, no, I have that backwards. Strabo was writing. Um, he was born right around the sixties BC. And of course, Julius Caesar was born around the hundreds. They did overlap a little, um, but uh, not very much. Strabo would have been probably in his 20s or so when Caesar was killed. Uh, but Strabo did kind of um, talk about the, um, um, the term German. Um, he said that uh, it was from uh, Germanus, which was like uh, family. Um, so it, it's very similar to um, um, uh, uh, what's the term I'm thinking of? Um, it, it, it's a cognate with several other you know family related terms. Um, then there is also some people who say that it comes from like an old. Uh, maybe Celtic word that was like gyre or gar, which basically meant neighbor, um, which, you know, uh, there were a lot of Celts in what is now France and Gaul. Um, so it's possible that, you know, the Romans heard something sounding similar to Germanus and they're like, oh, it's the the close kin or family or, you know, we're in the... the um, of course, the Gauls were just referring to them as their neighbors. Uh, and, of course, the Germans themselves, there's no national identity at that point in time. Everyone, you know, they have their extended, you know, clan ties and family ties. But generally, they they referred to themselves as their clan. Uh, it was a clan identity, not a national one at this earliest period. 
Um, but that's that's where Germany comes from. Um, now there is some uh, interactions between groups in northern Italy and Germany, um, or what will become Germany. Um, however, uh, even though the uh, weather is much more temperate, I doubt people were making uh, that journey through the Alps um, very regularly during, of course, the the fall and the winter. This was something that would probably only be done in the spring and the summer, um, because otherwise the passes would just be too, too um, dangerous. Uh, and we have found mummies uh, of people who were frozen or... Yeah, you got stuck in um, bogs and stuff like that in um, in Switzerland and Austria and those kind of places. Uh, and we'll talk about a couple of those guys uh, going forward. Um, but I think right now, actually, that's a that's probably a good place to, to pick it up. We've we've talked about Central Europe pretty good, and um, of course Italy. Um, I'd love to give some more specific sites about those places, but. Um, I uh, fortunately couldn't really get too much information about Germany. Um, but we'll have a lot more to talk about in this region the next few seasons, absolutely. Uh, but next week, we'll continue with the rest of Europe. We'll be going into um, France, Spain, Portugal, Iberia, Ireland, England. Uh, we'll get started with that. I don't know that I'll finish all of those places next time, but we'll at least start with that region and then see where we are. We might have another episode on Europe, um, and then, of course, we'll move on to the Americas. So, we'll uh, we'll see then. Um, but, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you have any kind of um, questions or feedback, please feel free to let me know. You can email me at waratrevpod at gmail.com. You can also contact me via direct message on Twitter or uh, by commenting on any of my YouTube videos. Um, it may take me a little bit to answer those, but uh, I will get to them. Um, also, if you're not subscribed on YouTube, feel free to do so. Um, but of course, continue listening on whatever app platform you'd like. Uh, I have been streaming some kind of historical slash warfare based games on YouTube. Um, I do that a couple times a week. Um, gotten some, some followers from it, so... Um, it's very different from this type of show, of course. This is more of a serious, more academic thing. Though I do like to drop some history facts in those streams as well. Um, but uh, however you listen to me, I do want to thank you all. Uh, I, I'm very uh, stunned every time I upload an episode by uh, the reception. So I do, I do want to thank you all for that. Um, and remember, I still have a couple of... Well, at least one bonus episode slot, so any kind of fantasy or, um, you know, um, historical drama like book or movie or a TV show, anything like that that you'd like me to cover, um, you know, suggest them the same way you would give any other feedback. Um, and uh, I can't promise I'll get to it this year because, again, we only have a, one or two spaces left. Um, but we'll definitely get to it in the future. I plan to do all those. So. Thank you all. I hope you have a great evening and a good rest of your week. I hope to see you next time. Thank you all. Goodbye.